0: Good morning. Uh, please open a pew Bible to page 912, or you can look in the bulletin at the end of Acts chapter 4. Now we're looking at a story from the beginning of the church. Uh, this book, The Acts of the Apostles, it was written by a physician named Luke for his friend Theophilus, so that Theophilus could know and be sure of the things he'd been taught about Christianity. So Luke is showing... That the message of Christ is authentic by giving us a historical account. And it's going to be crucial to keep in mind as we think through these events to remind ourselves that this is a critical juncture in history. And what I mean is that it's a special time in God's plan. So the things that happen here, they're not part of our experience today, they're not normative. And they weren't things that occurred really normally back then either. That's why you're going to see people are shocked, people are fearful. Uh, Things like this just aren't happening regularly. This is the beginning of Christ's church, and it's the beginning of the story that we're still continuing today. So as we enter the story, Jesus has died. He has risen again, and he's ascended to his father. And he's left his apostles to a mission to bear witness about him in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And here in chapter 4 and 5 of Acts, we're still in this Jerusalem section of the book. The gospel is spreading just in this city before it's let loose on the rest of the world. The story right now is kind of focused and zeroed in on the Apostle Peter. He's the main uh, instrument that God is using right now. He's using Peter and his companions um, as he builds his church. And he's building it with great momentum. At the beginning of Acts, Peter preaches... And literally thousands of people believe the gospel all at once. And as these people are added to the church, Luke is telling us what kind of community this was. What is this new body of people that come into being after the resurrection of Christ? And what is this message bearing? What kind of fruit is it yielding? We're going to see this amazing transformation as God's grace enlivens people to be really generous and united together. Then the story is going to take a turn, though, as God's judgment intrudes to preserve the integrity of this church. And both, both this inspiring part and this more jarring part uh, give us reasons for solemnity and both can give us reasons to hope. So please read with me, starting in verse 32 of chapter 4. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray together. Father, this is a weighty passage and it's also um, has something to say to us this morning. Please speak to us in this time. I ask that your spirit would be with us to speak to our hearts, to help us through any struggles we have in understanding this passage. And I pray that your gospel would, be, would show forth brightly here. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of person are you in secret? Uh, When I was a little kid living in Hawthorne, New Jersey, we lived on a fairly busy street in town, and one day, uh, as cars were passing by, I thought it'd be fun to throw rocks at them. To me, it was a game, hit cars with rocks. And I must have been a really lousy shot, because this probably would happen sooner. I actually hit one, and I think it was a decent-sized rock, and the car stopped. And I freaked out. I just didn't put together. You mean there are actual people in these cars that I'm throwing rocks at? Uh, They were just impersonal cars going down the street to me. But somehow I thought that this would go unnoticed. Uh, So I booked it to the back porch and I ran up the stairs to our second floor apartment. But soon a woman from the car was tromping up the stairs. And in the most casual voice I could imagine, I said, Hi. Hi, she said. What are you doing here? As if I didn't have any idea. And as she knocked on the door to talk to my parents, I knew I was caught good. But I I really tried to keep from getting in trouble. And somehow I thought I could get away with it. And I was sent to my room that night, as best I can remember. I don't know. My mom can corroborate the story. But I'm fairly sure my grandmother was coming over that night to watch me or something. And that was like going to be the best night ever because she's grandma. You can do whatever you want and she gives you stuff. But I had to stay in my room. I was found out. I can tell you that's just a slight example from growing up. But my, my parents cared about what kind of person I was becoming. They cared about my integrity and my character. I'm sure in that situation they were probably happy to not be sued um, but growing up, they, they cared about what kind of person I was becoming. And so it is that God cares about the character of his people. We see this in the life of the early church here. As I said before, Peter's the main voice of this early church in these beginning chapters of Acts. God's greatly using him and convincing many people to follow Jesus. But almost as soon as the church surges in growth, there's persecution. And that's the cycle of Acts. The church grows Thanks to God. And then there's persecution and then God sustains his church through the persecution. And then there seems to be another setback. So on throughout the book. But the trajectory of the church's growth is always upward. Christ said, I will build my church. The church will not be conquered. In our passage, we're kind of narrowing in on one of these cycles of growth. The spiritual growth followed by something that could have been a hindrance. So we're going to examine the outpouring of grace. The first part, the end of chapter four. How is God growing a transformed people? And then we'll see the opposition to grace. How did God ensure the purity of this new community when it was threatened? Then we're going to draw out some principles for our lives today. First, the outpouring of grace. In the verses before our passage, before we entered the story, earlier in chapter four, the church prays to God for boldness. They had been told and threatened to stop telling people about Jesus. But they know they can't do that. They can't just forsake the mission that Jesus has given them, even though they've been threatened. So they pray to God for boldness to keep speaking this truth. And as we see here, God answers their prayer. Luke says the Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to preach with boldness. God's grace is upon his people to be bold in their testimony and also bold in meeting one another's needs. They don't regard their possessions as their own. They have everything in common. For the sake of spreading the truth about Jesus together, they meet each other's needs. And you might be tempted to look at this and think, you know, was the early church some kind of communist organization? But I have to clarify, these unbelievable demonstrations of common possessions and of forfeiting real estate were completely voluntary. They're the result of God's Spirit working in their hearts. We know this because later in our passage, Peter asks Ananias, he says, while the land was unsold, wasn't it still your own? And wasn't, after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? So in other words, no one's pressuring you to do this. This is all what people feel like doing. It's, they're volunteering this. These believers had their hearts totally transformed by the grace and the Spirit of God. And they were truly free to live without fear. They were emboldened in their word and in their deeds. Um, It's also important for us to note the order of their giving and how trusting they were. They were laying their money at the apostles' feet, and then it's distributed according to those who had need. There's real submission being demonstrated here. I couldn't have asked for a better illustration than the story Adriana uh, shared this morning. Um, We're giving to the work of this church and we're trusting that those funds are going to be used for what we perceive God is doing out here. Um, so there's submission mission here and each person trusts God that through the apostles the money is going to be distributed to those who need it. It's a real act of faith. And Luke takes the time to tell us about a particular man from this community who's going to become a key figure later on in this book of Acts. This man, Joseph, who is also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He's one of these believers, and he's an example of this true generosity. He sells a field. He lays the money at the apostles' feet. He is an example of this Christian living and this Christian giving done well. Now, this is very inspiring, and it also can, can make you wonder, wow, how generous am I? Um, we'll get to that more but right now let's look at the opposition to grace in the passage that follows. So God has done a great transforming work in this community. And now that generous atmosphere is threatened by intruders and the tone shifts pretty quickly. And if you're if you're like me, you balk at this passage. So so they kept some money back and you know what it seems they told a little fib, right? And then they're struck dead. Now, at best, that makes you uncomfortable. You know, even if you've heard the story before. And at worst, it makes you scared or even angry. What kind of God would do this? How could God do this? If you hear and this sounds to you like God is some kind of bloodthirsty God, I want to be sensitive to that. I don't want to just gloss over the difficulty you may have with this. It's heavy. It's heavy. Let's consider uh, some things together. Like I said before, we have to keep in mind this is a critical point in God's work with the church. It's the beginning of the church, and at this point, this community is the church. The entirety of the church is here, right in Jerusalem. There aren't all these local churches around the world yet. So if this body of believers is compromised, then the whole church is polluted. This past week, how important was it for this one man in Texas to be kept there to not further spread a deadly disease? The church was at risk here of a deadly hypocrisy That would undermine the message of God's grace So God steps in for the integrity of his people But even so to us this seems harsh Is God demanding absolute generosity? Or are Ananias and Sapphira judged for lying Well, like we said, Peter says the money was at Ananias' disposal, even after the land was sold. So no one was demanding the full amount. So it's the lie for which this couple is judged. It's their conspiring together. They want to keep some money for themselves, but it also seems like they love the approval of others. And they want to be well thought of by the community, right? So they want to lie about what they're giving. They want to look good. So they present it as the full amount of the proceeds from their property, But this is hypocrisy. This is true hypocrisy. This is giving the appearance of pure, compassionate religion while being unrepentant toward God. They thought they could fool men, but Peter says they were really lying to God. As you hear this story, you might tend to cast judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. You might be thinking, yeah, they were hypocrites. And you know, there are so many fakers in the church today. It seems like a common sentiment from those outside the church that Christians are hypocrites. But be honest with yourself here this morning. We need to be honest. All of us have been where Ananias and Sapphira were. We've all been deceptive. We've all been in situations where we could have given more but didn't. We've all led others to believe we accomplished something when we didn't. The praise of others is really seductive, isn't it? None of us have a right to be self-righteous here. But we also shouldn't go the other way and go to despair. I look at my heart, I don't see abundant generosity like these early Christians. It's not there. There are times I don't even want to give my tithe on a Sunday morning. And what about that? Does that count as hypocrisy? When you do something you know you should do, even though you may not feel like it at the time, is that hypocrisy? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. The hypocrisy shown here by Ananias and Sapphira is just completely ignorant of God. It doesn't give him a thought. So examine yourself. What's your posture before God? Are you humble? Are you open and honest? Do you have a clear biblical picture of how much you fall short of God's character? Can you say something like, God, I don't feel like worshiping you this morning, but will you help me to see you as you truly are? There's grace for the person that says to God, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to obey, help my heart to be in it. Another tendency, this is probably the more prevalent tendency as we hear about the story of Ananias and Sapphira, is to cast judgment on God. But this is really just a much more perilous self-righteousness. To look down on God and say he has no right to treat people like this. We need to keep in mind that God does have the right to judge. He is perfect alone. He's holy. He's every truly good thing we aspire to be. That's his character. And he will judge. But he also extends us grace through Jesus. Jesus. Jesus lived the obedient life we could never live, died the death that we all deserve to rescue people from this kind of judgment. And this message of grace is so precious, and God's rescued church is so precious to him that God is protecting this early church from those who would trample on that message of his grace, those who would misrepresent it. He's preserving the integrity and the true unity of his church. Again, this is not normative. This wasn't common. God specially reveals to Peter that Ananias is lying. And God's future judgment specially intrudes into this situation for the good of his people and to protect them against this hypocrisy early on. But this grace is paradoxical. It it makes makes us conflicted. Look at Peter's life. Just weeks or months before this situation, Peter lied about even knowing Jesus. Peter denied Christ. And now he's involved in a situation where someone is struck dead just for lying. Is he a hypocrite here? The answer is that no. Peter's simply blessed to be under God's grace. He knew what it was to not deserve forgiveness and to receive it. So I don't think he's arrogant or puffed up here. I don't think he's self-righteous. And I don't think that these questions he asks them are rhetorical I think he's mournful for them. He's like, how could you do this? How could you together conspire? And he knows he can't. He can't do anything for them as they've opened themselves up to God's judgment. But Peter, after lying, had his heart changed. Peter, after denying Christ, repented. He was restored and forgiven by Jesus himself, which is not fair. What would be fair would be for all of us to be struck down as Ananias and Sapphira were. The things we've done in secret, the things we lead others to believe, our hearts are deceptive. It's only because of grace that we can sit here and take another breath and be given the gift of another day to sit here, hear this story, be thankful that we're under God's grace. It's only because of God's grace you're alive to hear this story and be able to ask If you haven't already asked, how can I escape the judgment of God? The judgment that they experience is coming to us all. And how are you going to stand on that day? Are you going to rely on your own merit, which is non-existent before God? Or are you going to plead Christ's perfect obedience on your behalf? And his death in your place as your only hope? Jesus is the only way to escape a guilty verdict before God. Grace makes life unfair. It's it's unfair to be pardoned when we're guilty. I also have to draw your attention to part of the question Peter poses to Ananias. He says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? For many people, Satan resides in the realm of superstition. But this isn't the view of the Bible. It's not the view of important people in the Bible, most notably Jesus, who fought against Satan. And Peter, Paul, Jude, other biblical authors, they speak of Satan as if he's a real being, whose goal is to oppose God. He seeks to exalt himself above God. Last week, Mark preached from a passage where Paul wrote that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's Satan. Satan is this world's God. He seeks to blind mankind to God's glory. And from the beginning, his lie was that, you know, God's not as good as you think he is. He's holding out on you. Ananias and Sapphira have bought into that idea that they can't trust God enough to be fully generous. And they're too prideful to be open and honest. The judgment on this couple, it's a warning to those inside the church and outside This would make people think twice before joining the community of God's covenant people. It says great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Later in verse 13, Luke writes, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. God has made it clear that this community of people is special. This community of people is different. They've been changed somehow. So what have we seen here? What does it mean for our spiritual well-being? How does that come into our lives today? Well, here's something for our lives right now. The Holy Spirit of God displaces fear. Um, Are we timid in sharing our faith? We need the Spirit to make us secure in God's love and bold enough to speak the gospel. Are you fearful about possessions? Does that manifest as stinginess? You need the spirit to release you from the fear that makes you cling to possessions for a secure future. You need the spirit to work the truth in your heart that Christ saw your deepest need and he sacrificed to meet it. And now you can see the needs of others and meet them spiritually and materially. I think we tend to emphasize one over the other. Some some Christians are all about social justice and, and giving, and that's good. And then some people neglect that and say, no, no, people need the gospel and they need to become Christians. And, and that's good. But there's both. There's both needs, spiritual and material. Uh, John Piper has, I think, an interesting take on a possible link here between the spiritual and the material. I want to read it for you. It stuck with me. He says, One of the reasons God created bread, or created the grain and the water, And yeast and fire and human intelligence to make it and I mean the really good kind that's not mainly air Is so is so that when jesus christ came into the world He would be able to use the enjoyment of bread and the nourishment of bread as an illustration of what it means to believe on him and be Satisfied with him. I believe that with all my heart bread exists to help us know what it is like to be satisfied in Jesus The pleasures of warm bread should send our senses and our spirits to Christ as the bread of life. The pleasures of cold water, when we're hot and thirsty, should send our senses and our spirits to Christ as the living water. The pleasures of light, making all other natural beauties visible, should send our senses and our spirits to Christ as the true light of the world. Now, I share that quote because maybe you've never considered that physical realities can point to spiritual realities. We tend to segment life into spiritual and physical. You might think church is a place to come to just have strictly spiritual fellowship. And you show up here on Sunday and you mingle and it's really great. And then you see everyone again next week. But you're, you're missing out on something. The, the camaraderie of the gospel produces a people that meet one another's physical needs as well. This early church enjoyed fellowshipping and meeting one another's needs. Now, I'm really encouraged when I hear about people getting together outside of church events. Uh, when I hear about the Hewitts having dinner with the Jordans, that, that makes me happy. It's so great to know that that wouldn't have happened without their being part of this church here. Maybe they wouldn't have even met. Uh, Tristan is a youth leader. He's been a youth leader for a couple of years. And he and his wife have taken in a boy from the youth group that really needed it. Um, this early church took care of their own. Yes, they had compassion on the poor. They wanted, but they wanted those outside the church to believe the gospel and be part of this community. There was not a needy person among them. There were plenty of needy persons outside them, no doubt. But if you were part of this body, you weren't going to go naked and you weren't going to starve. But just in case someone thought they could casually be among the people for the benefits, here was this fearful example before them of Ananias and Sapphira. And this gives us another principle. Uh, Don't pretend to holiness. Don't masquerade as something you're not. If you're here, you haven't given your life to follow Christ, you need to know not everyone that attends this church is a Christian. So don't value what people think of you. Care about what God knows about you. Your heart is laid bare before Him. So be honest with your doubts. Ask your questions. Be honest about your sins and your shortcomings. This is one of the least judgmental churches I know, thanks to God's grace. If you're hearing about Christ and you're pondering whether you should follow Him, you're in a really good place. In the meantime, don't make pretenses. During the Lord's Supper every week here at Grace, Mark really means it when he says that no one's going to judge you if you stay in your seat to consider Jesus. So don't come forward for the sake of appearances. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It matters what God knows. The story of God's judgment here, it's told to authenticate the Christian message that God is real. He sees your heart. You need His grace to stand before Him free of guilt. How is this possible? It's because Christ had no guilt. He could take yours upon himself, pay the ultimate price in your place. So that's God's love. Believe it here. Don't ignore it. And don't scorn his grace. Another thing we can learn from this passage here today for our lives is to recognize the spiritual realm. All of history is playing out. The triumph of God's grace against the opposition of Satan. Christians, we handicap ourselves if we don't recognize that there really are spiritual forces at work in this world. If you share the gospel with someone and they reject it, don't let that drive you to being timid the next time. Realize that people are blinded by the God of this world until the true God opens their eyes. You never know when God's going to loosen his enemy's hold on someone. So don't give up. Recognize spiritual realities. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you really have two options with regard to spiritual realities. You can say, I'm not blind. I see clearly. I'm not. No one's influencing me to reject Christ. I want to plead with you. Consider that if you're not part of the people that have been awakened to this grace to follow Christ, you're simply part of the world system. And that system is lorded over by Satan, by the enemy of God. And your other option is to find yourself saying, well, I don't want to be blinded. I see that Jesus is my only hope. And if that's true, God's grace is upon you. Come to Christ. Avail yourself of God's grace. The events we've seen are not normative. God's probably not going to strike someone dead in this dramatic fashion. But he continues to care about the integrity of his body. He continues to build his church and give his people the desire to put sin to death. We're not, it's not normative in this sense either. We're not going to form the Grace Presbyterian Commune and all move in together. and Give each other everything and sell all our houses probably. But what is normative is that God continues to change hearts by his grace today. Through his spirit, he makes a community of people that don't have to live in fear, but are bold in their words. They're bold to speak the truth of Christ. And they're bold in generous deeds of love. Let's pray. Dear Father, I ask that you would work this truth into our hearts. Help us to be bold to share your gospel and bold to be honest and bold to be generous to one another I pray that we would trust you as we seek to spread your gospel and seek your power over your enemy I pray that you would bless the rest of our time together in Jesus name Amen